So often I'm told that the Bible is an irrelevant storybook. It's a bunch of stories written by someone or lots of people from a long time ago that's got nothing to do with me. Have you found that? Have you found people having that opinion? Or maybe you have that opinion here today that, that the Bible just really is looked on as a bit of a joke, a bit of a, a, a non-influence to me. It's of no relevance to an educated, postmodern society. What we're going to see today is that Genesis, this piece of writing that kind of was written 4,000 years ago, talks about you and me. In fact, it predicted what would happen today here in, in Auckland, in New Zealand, in Moa's Nest, in Westfield, St. Luke's. We're going to see this passage that Sherry just read out actually talks about what's, what's going on today here. It predicted that it would happen. So why don't we pray that as we look at God's word this morning, he'd convict us and show us how we fit into his big plan. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you this morning for your word, that as we hear it, we hear you speak. We pray that as we open your word and think through what it says, that you would change us to be more like your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, the story of Genesis opens with kind of God creating the world. It starts off with God. It's going to give you a quick summary of where we've been so far. Uh, God kind of makes creation. He makes men and women. He makes them in, in relationship with him and everything's good. In fact, God says everything is very good. But then Adam and Eve, they're kind of not content with what God's given them. They want to be just like God. They want to determine what's right and wrong. They want to stand in the place of God and rule their own lives their own way without Him. So God kicks them out of the garden. They get sent out. And from that moment on, from Genesis 3 onwards, what we have in our hands is an epic adventure of God fixing up our mess. Fixing up people who are just like the chip off the old block. Just like their first parents, Adam and Eve. So through the first ten chapters of of Genesis, we've kind of seen a pattern. A pattern that kind of went, mankind rejected God, then God judged mankind, kicked them out, did something, and then God would show his grace, his, his undeserved gift. It's like this repeating pattern that happens the whole way through. So Genesis 3, mankind reject God, God kicks them out, judgment. But then he says to them, I'll clothe you, and I'll look after you. And he gives them this promise that someone who would come from Eve would get rid of the serpent. Then you kind of see Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Sin. Judgment. God kicks Cain out. Sends him further east. But then he gives Cain grace. An undeserved gift. He says, I'll protect you. I'll make sure you don't get wiped. The flood comes. Mankind's hearts were evil. Turned against God. Sin. Judgment. God then says, I'm going to wipe out the earth. And then you see grace. He takes this guy, Noah, who did nothing right, but trusted in God, saves him and restarts the earth when he could have just put things back to the way they were. But then last week, we saw the Tower of Babel. We saw mankind wanting to make a name for themselves, to build this massive tower to say, this is who we are. We can reach to the heavens. We don't need God. We're going to make a name for us. Now, if you're not sure, the Bible calls that sin. So we see the pattern. Then there's judgment. God sends different languages. They kind of all break up. They can't go forward. There's kind of all confusion. No one gets each other. And they kind of scatter across the whole earth for their refusal to fill the earth. Judgment. Problem is, I haven't seen much grace. 
This pattern goes through over and over and over again and then we stop with Babel and scattering. And it makes me think, has God had enough? Has God had enough at, at mankind rebelling against him? Has, has humanity crossed the line too many times? Is this it? It's where you find yourself though sometimes, isn't it? Thinking, you know, I don't know if I'm good enough for God. I don't know if I've crossed the line too many times. If I was God, I wouldn't forgive me. I wouldn't kind of give me another chance. I wouldn't give me grace. Do you ever find yourself there? Thinking that you've crossed it too many times? Well, the good news is the God of the Bible is nothing like you. He's nothing like you. The God of the Bible is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and mercy. The God that we meet in these pages is just so good. His goodness, his, his desire to love you, his desire to restore you, to, refix, to fix your relationship with God is so big, so radical, so like nothing else you've ever seen. How do we know? Because we see it when we get to chapter 12. We see something amazing. God gives his grace to a man named Abram. But more than that, we're actually going to see that God gives his grace, his undeserved gift, forgiveness to us, right here, right now, through Abram. You know those kids' books you can get? I used to have one when I was a kid where you kind of you send away and, and um, your mum usually gets it for you. and It's got your name in it. Not just in the front, but in the story. You know, you can write away and it's like, and Rowan went to school and he had, I had one of these books. It kind of had my name. I was one of the main characters all the way through it. And my friends from school were in there. I remember Alex, one of my, my best friends through primary school. He was there. It's kind of, you read this book because you're like, man, I'm, I'm in it. This is cool, right? We love reading stuff that's kind of got something to do with us. Well, I don't know if you saw it, but as you read through Genesis, you should have got the shock of your life because it spoke about you. God shows his grace to a guy called Abraham. He says his name will be great. How great? So great that we're talking about it today. He says, through Abraham, and here it comes, all the people of the earth will be blessed. That's you. If you're a person of the earth, and I gather all of you are, then God is saying you will be blessed through this guy. This is kind of like the bit that should jump out. Like when you read one of those kids' books and it's talking about you, this is talking about you. The Bible is saying that somehow, in some weird way, a guy that lived 4,000 years ago brings blessing to you. Now that's cool. If it's true, that's awesome. Whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, an academic, or an apple picker, anyone who says the Bible is not relevant for me just hasn't read it. Well, they haven't read past chapter 12 of Genesis because they are in it. You are here. God today is speaking to you. So let's listen to him, hey? So who is this guy, Abram? Well, I'm going to say he's the second most important human to have ever walked the earth. Because second most important human to have ever walked the earth. Jews, Muslims and Christians all claim that their lineage comes, the beginning comes from this guy. Three of the major world religions say it's all about Abram, or Abraham as he's later called. His name's mentioned close to 300 times in the Bible. That's pretty important. There's 27 books in the New Testament, right? 11 of them talk about Abram. 11. 
And in Hebrews chapter 11, it's a great chapter that talks about all the great heroes of old, all the ones that have gone before, of the kind of the people of faith who trusted God. Most of the people in Hebrews 11 get one verse. And that's pretty cool, right? You're kind of like, these guys were awesome. Moses, the author of Genesis, the guy that wrote this, he gets six verses. Abraham gets 12. This guy is important. And when it comes to faith, when it comes to what God's about, he is the key. Next to Jesus, this man's the most important person you'll ever see. Let me tell you then a little bit about Abraham's family. They were from Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, as a side note, it's got to be the most uncreatively named city in the world, hasn't it? I mean, okay, we rock up, we see it, we're like, man, this place is awesome. What are we going to call it? Uh, oh, that's a great name. We'll just call it Ur. I mean, anyway, that was funny, I thought. We actually know a fair bit about Ur of the Chaldeans um, because of the work of an archaeologist called Sir Charles Woolley. In other words, you can actually go to where Ur was today. It's in the middle of Iraq. They've kind of done some digs um, and there are some ancient bricks that you can kind of see. Not just bricks, but whole temples, whole places that you can go and actually see where this city was. It's in what they called Babylonia. Now, Ur wasn't a beautiful city at all. Maybe that's why they called it Ur. It was a city that was in rebellion against God. It's where the Tower of Babel would have been, in in Babylon. These people were a kind of moon-worshipping people who had nothing to do with God. They they didn't want anything to do with him. They, They kind of hated him. They were in rebellion against him. That's where Abram comes from. Abraham's father, what do you reckon he was like? Well, his name was Terah. Now, I reckon when you name kids, right, you've got lots of freedom. I think there's lots of freedom and creativity in what you want to call your kids. Some people kind of summer, winter, autumn, spring, apple. I don't know. There's some weird names out there. But if you call your kid Terra, how do you reckon they're going to turn out? Like, it's not the most appealing name, is it? Well, that's exactly what happened to Abraham's father. Abraham's dad was like the rest of Ur. Joshua 24, it's up on the screen, tells us that Terah worshipped other gods. He worshipped other gods. That's cool. If you hit clear all up the top, it will all go. Then if you press the button, it will be fine. There you go. Sorted. So Terah was one of these guys that worshipped other gods. He's a man who knew nothing of the God of the Bible, who worshipped false gods, who was committed to worshipping Satan, because anyone that's not for God is against him. Yet Abraham is called someone great. One thing to take from this is don't be discouraged if your dad was a dropkick. Don't think, you know what, I'm stuffed. Generational sin has passed on and there's nothing I can do. I'm I'm a casualty of my own parents' lineage. This passage, if anything, shows you are not. Lots of people think Abraham was a Jew. They're like, yeah, he's the greatest Jew that ever lived. But he wasn't. Not to start with, anyway. He was a Babylonian. He was from modern-day Iraq. Not a Jew. That's where he came from. Now, in the Bible, whenever you read Babylonian, pretty much you read people who hate God. It's kind of shown as the city that's most against him. So you're getting the picture here, right? Abraham's coming from a country that has nothing to do with God. This is Abraham. This is his family. This is his nation. This is where he lived. There's nothing intrinsically good 
about Abram. So often people think Christianity is about being a good person. It's about living a way that is kind of right and hanging out with the right people and doing the right things. It's about how good you can be. But it's not. If it was, Abram would be a nobody. But what makes Abram a somebody is that he took God at his word. Have a look at verse 1, chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So Abram left, in verse 4. God's first word to Abraham, the first thing he hears, the first kind of like, hey, how are you going, is leave. Get out. Leave your family, your country, your relationships, everything that is around you, and go. I mean, can you imagine that? Hey, who are you? Someone comes up and just tells you to get out, and you're like, well, what's going on here? I mean, imagine the upheaval, all the things you'd have to move, the loss of relationship, the loss of familiarity, the loss of income, of livelihood, all your jobs you were doing, the way you... It's like a total new start. It's every little bit of security pulled out from underneath you as you move to somewhere new. He's got no Skype. He can't just catch up with his family on the internet. There's no email. There's no telephone calls. There's no last-minute web specials to fly back to Earth. When you can't do it, you've got to walk for weeks, for months. God's call to Abraham is a total cut-off from his past. It's to leave a world that was in ruins. To turn your back on the murderous ways of Cain. On the arrogance of Lamech. Turn your back on the evil that that we saw in Genesis 6 as, as every heart was filled with evil all the time. It's to walk away from that. To leave the rat race that's trying to build a name for itself and trust God. That's the call. Trust a God you've never seen before, you've never heard before. And he now just speaks out of the blue. Leave. That's the call of the God of the Bible, friends. It's to come and trust him. It's to take him at his word. And that's exactly what Abram does, and that's what makes him great. Not knowing where he was going, he trusted the word of God. No arm twisting, no bargaining, no complaining. Abraham took him at his word. I mean, if this was me, it would have been like, okay, but what are you going to do? Where are we going to go? When are we going to get there? What's it going to look like? Where am I going to live? You know, all these questions want to go through my head, don't they? And, and throughout the Bible, you, you kind of see this pattern that when people kind of just are silent and do things, that's when they trust God. They just take him at his word. You see that with Abraham. A bit later, Abraham starts asking questions. He's like, hang on a minute. These promises you're giving me, well, you know, where are they going to come from? You're telling me, we're going to see in a second, that I'm going to have a great nation. My wife is barren. How's that going to work? Whenever you hear people start questioning God's faithfulness, you hear people who don't trust him or are starting to waver. But Abram here takes God at his word. No complaining, no like bargaining. I'll go, God, if you give me a really nice car or a camel. I'd love a camel, you know? That would be awesome. No, he leaves. Throughout the Bible, greatness is depicted as trusting God. So Hebrews 11 kind of goes through, holds up the great ones of faith, of trust. It's the same word. But specifically, greatness 
He's trusting in not just God, but the promises of God. Trusting in the promises of what He says. Trusting in the promises of what the promises that God has made. Not what I want Him to make. I think so often we hear people that trust in promises that really are just from their own wishful thinking. They're like, yeah, God's told me this, or they've kind of got these ideas, and they're like, yeah, I want to do this. But not what actually God promises. That's why at Auckland AV we want to keep working through God's Word. We want to be grounded in the Word of God. It's here where you'll find that the Bible is the absolute authority. That everything we do is tested against what God says because we want to make sure we're doing what God says. We want to make sure we're not just kind of making up a story on our own. We want to hear what God has to say. That's why we generally work through books of the Bible chapter by chapter. We want to let God's Word set the agenda. You don't want to hear me speak. You don't want to hear my kind of hobby horses and ideas. Let me tell you, you get bored after five minutes. You want to hear the voice of God. You want to hear what God has to say to us. And so that's what we do here. You listen to me to the extent that I kind of point out what God is saying. God's word is the authority. Not me, not anyone else, but God. Abram trusted in God's word. To a massive extent. But you and I, we get to see so much more than Abram ever did. We get to see what he never saw. 4,000 years of God's action in humanity, we see. We have it recorded in the Bible. 4,000 years of God keeping his promises. So we have no excuse. Every one of those promises we'll see in a moment has been fulfilled. So we have no reason not to believe. There's no reason not to believe. So Abraham goes, trusting in the word of God to a land he doesn't know anything about. All he has to cling to, the only security, is the promises of God. Have a listen to what this promise actually is. Genesis 12, verse 2. God says, I will make you, Abram, into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Friends, here is the beginning of the rest of the Bible. These are the verses that kind of set the trajectory of everything that's in your hands. This is the key passage to know what's God doing. This is the beginning of God's mission to restore humanity to himself. Everything else in the Bible from Genesis 12 onwards has at its core this promise. So kind of highlight it in your Bibles, you know. Go there, it's fine to write in your Bibles, there's books, but... Uh, You can go, this is key. This is kind of controlling the way I view everything. How is God going to bless Abraham? Abraham, turns Abraham. How how is he going to be a blessing to the world? How is he going to get a land? How are all people on the earth going to be blessed through him? If you keep those questions in your mind, the Bible will make sense as one big story. So many people think the Bible is kind of like two stories. You've got the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is this vengeful God that's kind of angry. And then you meet the God of the New Testament who's love. No. The God we meet in the pages of the Bible is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. His promises come true and his promises are to bring blessing through Abraham's family, through this guy we meet right here. 
So the first thing we note as, as we look at these promises is that it's God who does it. In contrast to the people before who were trying to make a name for themselves, here we see this blessing, this promise is from God. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless you and I will bless the world through you. So different to those tower builders we met who want to make a name, who want to stand on their own two legs. It's in stark contrast to Abram's parents. God chooses Abram and God will make his name great. God will make him into a great nation. This is a story about God. The way God works through his word and the way God works through his promises. If Genesis 11 is the city of man, then Genesis 12 is the beginning of the city of God. It's the city God builds. And it's a city of blessing. Just listen to this. I'll read it again. It'll be up on the screen. The same verses. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all people on the earth will be blessed through you. Blessing is just like a word for kind of goodness. Goodness will come to you. The best things will come to you through Abram. Abraham would get what we could never achieve ourselves. Great blessing, a great nation, a great name. Through Abraham, from his line, as we read through the rest of the Bible, kings would come. Other nations would call him a prince. We said in Genesis 23, he's called the prince from the Hittites. A thousand years later, after Abraham, King David would be the king par excellence, the king of all kings, the king God chose. He's, he's Abraham's son. Then David's son Solomon would be the wisest man on the planet and people would flock to Solomon for his wisdom, for his resources, for his wealth. This, this guy just stood out as kind of the highlight of humanity. Everything you ever want to do or ever want to achieve, I tell you, don't look at, don't look at Solomon because he just smashes it. He's, he's a doctor, he knows everything, he's kind of got all the money in the world, he's got all the women in the world, he's got just everything. And here we are, 4,000 years later, talking about a 75-year-old Iraqi pensioner, talking about a guy who came out of Babylon, of all places, and here we are, fulfilling this exact promise, that his name would be great. Friends, God keeps his promises. you just got to open the history books and you see it time and time again. The God of the Bible is a God you can trust. But sometimes, as we look carefully, it feels like some of his promises haven't been kept. Israel, Abraham's descendants, are no longer a great nation. I don't see them as the world's superpower, do you? The land that they were promised them, that was promised to Abraham's offspring, well, that's been a point of contention for Muslims, for Christians, and for Jews for I don't know how long. There's wars, there's battles, there's fighting. There's, there's so much about this promised land on the West Bank. Has that really been given to his descendants? Has God fulfilled this promise? And it's hard to see how the blessings have come to the whole world through Abram, isn't it? How has it gone to the whole earth when we still suffer? When the world isn't as we want it to be, we still kind of turn our backs on God. How do we make sense of it? 
Well, thankfully, Paul, the writer of Galatians, a guy who kind of came after Jesus and, and told people about who Jesus was, he tells us, because Abram is key. Have a look. Galatians 3.16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. That's what offspring means, by the way. Seed, it's, it's actually the word offspring. The scripture does not say, and to his seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. The blessings of the world that were promised to Abraham would come through Jesus, through his seed, through not all his generations, but through one, Jesus Christ. The greatest name would be the name that is above every name, Jesus. The promised land would not be found in Israel, not a patch of grass on the West Bank, but as Jesus would make the world anew again, and there'd be a new heaven and a new earth. And in him, as we come to Jesus, we see the promises he brings. He says, I offer you forgiveness. I offer you a new heart. I offer your relationship with God to be fixed forever. God's new city, his new people, it's found in Jesus. That's the key. That's how God fulfills the promises. The promise to Abraham was that Jesus is coming. Abraham's hope was actually in Jesus. Abraham's faith was actually in Jesus. The the blessing for the whole world was in Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. It's pointing to him from the beginning. You kind of hear it in Genesis 3 when sin enters the world. There's this little promise that a child of the woman would crush the serpent's head, would put Satan to death forever. Little hints of Jesus, who would die in our place. He would deal with death. He would deal with the rottenness. He would face God. He never did what mankind did in that little pattern, sin, judgment, grace. He never sinned. Yet he stood on a cross and faced God's judgment for the whole world. And that was God's gift. You see, in Jesus, all God's promises come together and all his blessings come together. As you read the rest of the Bible, it plays out these promises. Slowly, God's promises unfold and the promises will be kept until the seed of Abraham will come. That's why when Matthew starts his gospel, the New Testament starts with the book of Matthew, it's called Good News. Do you know how he starts? He starts with a genealogy. One of the most boring things I kind of find as I read through the Bible, like, oh, a list of names, so what? But it goes like this. Have a look. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. For Matthew, the key to the fulfilment of God's promises from all time came through Abraham, through David, and is Jesus Christ. That's what God's trying to say. You want to know the Bible in in kind of one sentence? We stuffed up, but God loves us through Jesus to bring us all the blessings of the world if we would just trust him. The seed of Abraham would bring blessing to the world in Jesus. So the gospel is a promise. That's what it means. It's kind of good news. And it was the same promise that was given to Abraham. It's just made clearer. We see it more clearly now in Jesus. And what made Abram great? He took God at his word. He trusted the promise of God. There's one more thing I want to show you. Something I think we kind of often miss with Abram and what's going on here. 
he became really the first gospel missionary. I don't know if you've thought about him like that before. Abraham is the first gospel missionary. When most of us will be settling down for retirement, kind of 75 years of age, Abraham sets out to take the promises of God to the world. He says in verse 5, it's on the screen, and he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and all the people that acquired in Haran. Now when you read that, one thing stands out to me. Two things. He's got a cool wife's name. becomes Sarah. I don't think that's a great name because I'm married to Sarah. But apart from that, um, he took all the people they had acquired in Haran. What's that talking about? Is that talking about what I think it's talking about? Is that talking about the Abraham's slaves? That he was this guy who would kind of had all these slaves and servants? And Well, actually, the Jewish tradition says no. The earliest rabbis say they're not actually slaves, but converts. These are people that Abraham has told, look, God has come to me. God has told me he will bring us blessing. He has said it will happen through me. I've done nothing. Come and see what God will do. Come with me. And they did. This is the first great missionary. Abraham had been actively sharing the promises of the true and living God with everyone he met. And as you kind of look through, that, that's what he, he does. Next, he goes into to, to the, to Canaan, to enemy territory. He goes to the tree of Morah. You're like, okay, what's the big deal with the tree of Morah? Well, the, the tree of Morah, Morah means teacher, oracle giver. This was the place that the Canaanites had as their temple, the place where they they would listen to the rustle of the trees and the soothsayers would interpret what their gods would tell them through this tree. This, for the Canaanite people, was their Mecca. This was the main deal. What does Abram do? He goes straight there, sets up an altar to the true and living God and says, we worship this God. He is the true God. Straight into the heart of the enemy territory and says, come and meet the God who has shown me everything, who will bless the world, the true God. Then he goes on to Bethel and does exactly the same thing. Wherever Abram goes, he worships God. He spews out God's praises. This is a guy that's been captivated by the promises of God. It seems to me that when you understand what God has really offered us, like Abram did, when, when you get a grip on who God really is, he changes you into a person of mission. He sends you out. He kind of takes our consumer mentality, our questions. What about my security? What about, what about my people? And, and, and throws them out the window. He takes my what's in it for me attitude and makes people willing to leave their nation, their home, their family, their security for the single purpose of someone else getting a glimpse of the God who keeps his promises. It's all gone. Because he wants people to know this God. Abram recognised the blessings of God. He recognised that he was blessed so he could bless others. That's the general principle throughout the Bible. We are blessed to bring a blessing to others. And friends, we have been blessed in so many ways. Just as a church... um, as we were starting, we were trying to raise the money to be able to start this church. And a mate of mine, a year, year before I started a little church in Mackay, which is in Australia. It's kind of a mining town up the top of, um, of Queensland. Uh, the church had been going for a year. There's probably about 
15, 10 to 15 adults. Uh, it's a mining town. Some people have massive incomes. Some people um, waste their incomes on beer and alcohol and all sorts of stuff. But th- they, didn't, they didn't have much money. And I got an email from him out of the blue. Um, he was kind of saying that they're praying for us and that they talked through with their kind of small, kind of little executive group of people leading that church, talking about 10 or 15 people, and they decided that they wanted, that they'd been given some money and they thought their budget was looking good and they wanted to bless uh, another church, to see another church start. So they were going to give us $5,000. As we started, this little tiny group of 15 people went, we have been blessed to be a blessing. Friends, we can only exist here because God has blessed others. And he's blessed us, hasn't he? Not just in that. Everything we have is a gift from God. The only thing we deserve is judgment. Yet God has showered us with blessings, with good things. He's showed us his son. Jesus has died in our place. He's offered us forgiveness. He has blessed us immensely. We have so much at our disposal, don't we? Time, resources, Money, relationships, friends, houses, cars, clothes, knowledge. We have so much. And what do we do with them? The temptation is to hold on to them. To kind of turn them into our security, our hope, our dream. This is what I'm about. We kind of hoard them. But we are blessed to bless others. The message we have is to go out. We exist as a church to share the good news of Jesus with the world around us. We exist as people to share the good news of Jesus with the world around us. When you see what God has done, his faithfulness to his promises, the great blessings that he's shown us at the immense personal cost to himself, when you've been captivated by the cross of Christ, what cost is too much? What sacrifice would be too excessive? What security could you not let go of so that others may experience the forgiveness that God has given you? Seriously, friends, what is too much? Friends, we are a church on mission. Everything we have is God's. Let's give Him our all. Let's not hold anything back from Him. I'm not just talking about giving to church. I'm not just talking about you know finances, but that's one aspect. I'm talking about our lives, the way we live, our whole mindset. We are a church on mission because we have a God who keeps His promises. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much for your blessings. Lord, when we really all we deserve is judgment, you have given us so much. We deserve to be kicked out of your presence. Yet you are a God like no other. You've shown us your love. You've shown us your compassion. And we want to say thank you. Lord, show us what things we're holding back. Show us where we're trying to hoard the blessings you've given us. And help us, Lord, to live so others might have a glimpse of the great forgiveness you've given us. Lord, if some of us here today uh, do not know you, we pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would speak like you spoke to Abraham here in your word. 
We want to thank you that we have the sure word of God right here in our hands. That you have spoken to us and we have it. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of the God who keeps his promises and help us to trust you. Amen.